Hello there. We're trying to keep Coral Chihuahua going, and so we draw your attention to the possibility of listening to us on Patreon for just a few quid a month. This also magically gets rid of the ads. That's Patreon with an E, patreon.com forward slash Coral Chihuahua. On with the app. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello there, and here we go again with Coral Chihuahua, this time on Bird. Uh, we should just start with a, a brief apology. We didn't quite get the uh, the technical things right this time. The sound is a little bit distant uh, when it's uh, Nicholas speaking. Um, on the other hand, for our authenticity level, it's quite high in that it was recorded in a room off St Paul's Cathedral in London. Not the building Bird would have known, of course, but all the same, fairly echt. It's a BBC Singers thing. Today we are delighted to be joined by Dr Katie Bank, who is a researcher at the University of Birmingham, and Andrew Coward, who is Director of the Cardinals Music and also Master of the Choristers at St Paul's Cathedral. Welcome both. Thrilled Thank to see you. Thank you. Um, to, we're talking today about uh, birthday boy, William Bird, whose 400th anniversary occurs this year. For we are death, death day boy, I'm afraid. Death day boy. Yeah. Let's, let's put a damn on the side, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, well. Um, lovely. Um, Katie, since you've, since you've packed <laughs> up, do you want to tell us a little bit about just his general life and history and his surroundings that he would have worked in? Yes, well, I'm going to skip his birthday now that you've mentioned it because that's a subject of much controversy and could be a really boring podcast on... Sorry, it's not boring. A boring podcast on its own. So we'll skip that part and go straight on to perhaps a young bird. Um, he could have been a chorister at St. Paul's Cathedral, uh, as his two older brothers were, but there's no distinct record of Bird having been a chorister or being educated in music at St. Paul's. However, one can assume or guess that if his two older brothers were, that's a distinct possibility given his eventual line of work. Um, and then he next pops up really in his early 20s when he's uh, appointed organist and Master of the Choristers, I'm not sure if that's the correct title, but at Lincoln Cathedral. Um, I don't know if, Andrew, you want to say anything about that? Yes, I mean, so he probably wouldn't have been Master of the Choristers because there wasn't a huge amount of mastering of choristers okay. going on. <laughs> so, I mean, there was, somebody would have been responsible, an almoner or someone. But yes, Bird is appointed as organist. 
And um, it's an interesting uh, move, I think, from him. It's obviously a career move because he's been in London. He's had, as you're saying, he's had some education in London. Mm -hmm. He's worked with John Shepherd. We know that because there's a piece that Shepherd and Mundy and Bird produced together. Must date from the late 1550s and before Shepherd dies. Um, and then he goes right out of London, all the way up uh, to Lincoln, and uh, this is where a lot of his English service music, so Second Service, uh, Preventer So Laws, pieces like that, yeah. the responses will date from. We know he got into a bit of hot water up there. Because his organ voluntaries were way too flowery. Nobody wants a flowery organ voluntary. They say it for years. <laughs> so the dean and uh, chapter apparently um, um, gave him a little... Wrap across the knuckles. So do we get, sorry, do we get a sense of a sort of truculent character or just a clergy being clergy? Oh, interesting, isn't it? Yes, I think it's a bit of both. You you get a sense of an early bird's personality developing, or you know, who is he going to be? Is he going to be the kind of person who we'll talk about a little bit later, who was constantly in little legal squabbles and like fighting with neighbours and was a bit stubborn, perhaps? And you see the beginnings of that person in his years at Lincoln. Um, but also he had a, a, a perhaps a strict uh, clergy people at Lincoln as well who wanted things to go a certain way. And eventually they withheld Byrd's pay for about nine months. But Byrd, you know, in spite of having you know a family and a wife, he said, fine, no pay for nine months before he eventually agreed to just play the notes, the starting notes, uh, for the uh, was, for the singers. It was an aggressive, I think it was an aggressively reformed chapter. Right. But yeah. what I, what I, and I have no evidence for this at all, but what I sort of imagine is is the young bird's musical brain just over-fizzing. You know, I just think, I suspect he sits down to start playing and the ideas just come thick and fast. Yeah. organ music I mean some of it's astonishing mm. and I can imagine him, you know it all coming out for the first time yeah we'll come to that perhaps in a bit the sense of this young man kind of thrustingly um, advancing his musical personality what about teachers or education did he was friends with Talis was there is there a royal relationship we can talk about well, there's, uh, yes, he certainly seems to be friends with Talis because when he has the 1575 um, collaboration and they get this, this great monopoly on the printing of music, he obviously has a relationship, um, as I mentioned, with John Shepherd, uh, the great composer who dies in 1559. He's Oxford-based, is he? Uh, he has been in Oxford, but by this stage he's down in London at okay. St Margaret's Westminster. Uh, and uh, William Mundy, the older William Mundy, who um, appears to have a connection with Westminster Abbey, so um, and this is, and we're back to we don't know anything about Bird's early life, but, but they are they write a piece together 
called In Exit to Israel, um, Shepherd writes four verses, Mundi writes four verses, third, but three verses, sorry, Mundi writes three verses, and Bird writes three verses. And it's a specific liturgical piece designed for the Easter Vigil, and therefore it must be for the Mary's Reformed Rite. So it's got to be before 1558. Right. Um, and so that's a rather wonderful thing. So you're two young composers and the older composer. So that's obviously had an impact on him. So he's obviously heard the fruits of Mary's restoration, you know, the attempt to rediscover the pre-Reformation music, but in a rather new and glorious and slightly thicker, um, I would say, style. Yeah, lovely. Should we have some music? Casey, you've chosen the first track. Do you want to tell us what it is? Oh, I don't remember what I chose. It's Oh Lord in Thy Wrath. Um, and the recording is by Alamire from their recent recording of the Bird 1589 um, Psalm Sonnets and Songs. I, I think that's what the title is. That yeah. Sounds good. Brilliant. <laughs> Lovely. That's, oh Lord, oh no, it's not, is it? That's just Lord. Yes, it's just Lord. It's just Lord. That's Lord in thy wrath, Correct Me Not, uh, by William Bird, from a disc by Alamire, directed by David Skinner, and the singers we heard there were uh, Claire Wilkinson on mezzo-soprano, Simon Wall on tenor, and with Tim Scott Whiteley on bass. Now, tell us a bit about why you've chosen that, Katie. It's, it's not, wouldn't be my first choice, but you can explain perhaps. I think I just feel that Bird is incredibly good at writing for three voices, and that's something that's really under-discussed and under-performed, under-talked about. I mean, this is the first recording of these pieces, and um, these because they're small. And it's, it doesn't follow modern tastes to have small little pieces that you could sing with your friends around a table after you've drunk some wine 
at night, you know? Yeah. That's not what we do today. And that's more okay, but that's what my friends do. But we are very niche, um, you know? So I think it's good to hear this kind of pared down music because you can really follow the polyphonic line. Um, you can hear the words and you can also kind of imagine, especially in this one voice per part um, recording, what it would have been like to have that kind of interaction, social interaction. Um, so I think three voice music in general, and you see this with Wilkes as well, is very underperformed and uh, it has so much merit. So I wanted people to hear it because I think that it's actually quite fun. It can be very beautiful and uh, you really can hear the craftsmanship in Bird's writing in a way that perhaps you can't when you're just overwhelmed with luscious texture. Yeah, I think we'll come to that a little bit more of that later. But is it, would these have been domestic pieces? I mean, religious text, but are they, are they designed for, as we are, to be set around the table with a glass of wine or...? Are they designed for chapel or somewhere else? Exactly. They're designed to be sung at home amongst your friends in a social setting. And yes, there are psalm texts, and yes, it's a religious uh, subject matter, but that's a good thing, right? We want things that are going to kind of warm the spirit and the heart in addition to, uh, you know, be fun and something that's entertaining to do. Nice. Mm. Lovely. Um, something slightly different. Uh, Andrew, you are th we, we think you're still the only person to record the complete Latin bird. So this is now a different personality. Can you tell us a bit about your relationship? How did you come to that project? Um, yes, well, the Cardinals had done um, a big survey of pre-Reformation music, uh, Ludford and Fairfax and Cornish. The Cardinals rather than the Cardinals' music. Yeah, the Cardinals' music, <laughs> yes. <laughs> you mean the baseball team? <laughs> That's right. um, and uh, we'd, had, we'd had a great time doing that, and um, we... We wanted to skip forward. Um, we, we very much liked the idea of um, doing series. That was very in in the days when recording companies were up for all this stuff. Yeah. And nobody had done nobody had done Bird, and it's so stunning yeah. that you know it was a no-brainer. Really, we thought it would just be a wonderful thing to do to, to, to do a survey. So it had been a huge, huge privilege mm. to do it. And how long? How many discs does it cover? How long did it take? So it's thirteen discs, yeah. um, three of manuscript pieces. And then the publications 1575, 1589, 1591, uh, and the Graduadia interspersed throughout it. And then we did one more disc, because I'm just a tiny bit um, superstitious, so we did one more disc with a great service and oh, some okay. of the English music, but just a, a small... What, tell me about that superstition. Well, 13. Mm. You know. oh, I see. It's okay. Oh, if, you decide, cool. if you decide it's Christ... I it's Christ and the Twelve Apostles, it's all right. But, you know, 13, it's, it's quite a bit old-fashioned these days, isn't it, um, to say that to one thing that the Bird Central followers have been dying to know is, which I kind of guessed the answer to, but why isn't there a box set? And how can you get your hands on that one disc that no one seems to be able to find? Well, it's very funny you should say that. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, um, as you probably know, Hyperion has moved under the umbrella of Universal. Mm -hmm. And I have been chatting to them, except now means because Half Heart Bird series is on ASV, yep. which is also went, went under the uh, Universal umbrella some time ago and the other half is on Hyperion. So they are now on the same label. Um, there's, I, I can't, with my hand on my heart, say absolutely definitely, but there are discussions about producing a, a complete bird box set from that series. Um, so, so I mean, that's, there's palpable excitement in the room now. Watch, watch, watch this space. I, I, I would love to do that, just to bring it all together. Yeah, and to, can you tell us a little bit about um, what you learn from that sort of experience? What you learn about, about bird, of course, about the composer's life and personality, perhaps also about what it takes to, to make this music successful, I suppose, also, mm. to make it sing. 
Yeah, I mean, it's um, to immerse yourself in a composer to this extent is, is extraordinary. And I'm so grateful to ASV and Hyperion, actually, for allowing us to do that. Um, and I think the singers loved it as well. Mm. Um, we, uh, I've always had a very text-based approach to um, my music making. Um, that fits hand in glove with Bird, who I think also um, has, has a very text-based approach. So we became very aware. So that's misericordia, misericordiam, whatever its ending happens to be. He's talking about mercy all the time. There's so many pieces in Felix Ego all the time it comes up. Um, I think it's a very important word for him. We started to notice some very important words. We notice a big difference of style. So most clearly between, let's say, 1575 or even 1589, the two great collections he's publishing, and the Gradualia, 1605-1607, I mean, that's a generation apart. Music's yeah. moved on. He's absolutely there at the forefront of new music making, new ideas. We see that. Um, I think the two things which shine through for me more than anything else are wit, and that's both rhetoric, uh, you know, how you express not just the individual words in a madrigalian way, but the overarching sentiment, um, emotion, uh, behind a particular text, I think is that. Uh, but also the wit of, as you were just saying, friends making music. Um, you know, it's a conversation, it's a dialogue. Um, and you see that, I mean, at its most extreme, I think, in the great service, which I have a bit of a theory about. Um, uh, but, uh, which shall I tell you about? Which yeah, I, say, I was going to say. Well, well, just to so, I mean, it seems to me Bird is doing a, Bird is doing a big... I've no, no, no historical evidence for this at all. Um, it's never stopped me before. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, he's obviously doing a big tidy up of stuff. I think 1589, 1591, secular and sacred. There's a lot of stuff going on. We know that he leaves the orbit of London and moves out to Essex. Um, to Stondon Massey, and apart from popping back for the odd Chapel Royal major event, he's basically there in that community. Um, we know that the Great Service is sometime in the 1590s, it's written okay. sometime in the 1590s, it's for ten voices, that's big. Mm -hmm. There are very few choirs in the country who can sing ten voice music, in fact there's probably only one, right. that's the Chapel Royal. And I sort of have a feeling this is Bird writing for his mates, saying, you know, I'm off, I'm not, I'm not going to be coming back. You're not going to see me much again. It's been terrific. This is for you. Parting gift. And it's, I just think that the dialogue and the discursiveness and the wit of it, mm. I think, is really, really clear. And I have this sort of feeling, because there's so much publishing, tidying up, sorting out, going on, that maybe this is his, his parting gift to his friends at the Chapel Royal. So I sang it this summer um, at the Bird Festival in Portland, Oregon with Carrie McCarthy, and we were talking about it after the service, and 
she was saying, I think she was saying how, um, you know, as a, as a listener, you hear one thing, but then when you're in it with those 10 voices, you, you, there's so much little dialogue and little things that happen across that can, even though that they're separate and there's so much happening within it that you get a completely different experience of that piece when you're singing it than when you're just listening to it. And I do think that that's pretty true about I that piece. Absolutely true. Yeah, I think it's absolutely true. In fact, Peter Phillips, the director of the Talent Scholars, um, always maintains that um, singers like Tan- um, like Bird and audiences like Talis. And I don't agree with that entirely, but I sort of know what he means. Go on. You, when you feel on the inside, I think, with Bird, you mm. feel as if you're in on... Uh, you may not be able to say exactly what it is you're in on, but you're, you're on the inside. You're, it's, he's writing it for you, for you to talk to your friends, for you to sing an interesting line, yeah. which has got a quirky rhythm or a, a particular melodic shape, and it bounces off from one to the other, and it's it's fun. You are you have to be in relation with people to do. Yeah, that. I think it's, it always feels to me much more like chamber music in the mm. in the kind of more modern sense, doesn't it? The conversations and little in jokes or, yeah, or development of ideas that mm. go somewhere. And people have to keep in mind that when you're reading things from part books, you have such a different experience of those kinds of conversations because there's so much more communication that has to happen between singers in order in order to pull it off, really. Because you you know if you lose your part, you can't just look down at your score and find where the tenors are. You know you have to trust them. They have to trust you. You have to look up and communicate. And so it's a very different, more communicative way of reading music. I think. Yeah. Let's have some more music. You mentioned in Felix Engel before. Do you, let's just hear it first. We'll hear just an extract from the end, which is, I think, quite good. Um, and then we'll perhaps talk a bit afterwards. Brilliant.
that was William Byrd's In Phoenix Ego, um, sung by the Cardinals Music, directed by Andrew Carwood, who's here with us today. Um, Andrew, tell us about that. It's quite a unique part of Byrd's album, that extraordinary text. Yeah, the text, is ab- the text is absolutely remarkable. It's mm-hmm. allegedly uh, written by Savonarola, um, the great Dominican friar in Florence, who uh, must have been an absolutely terrifying individual, I think. Great, fierce preacher. He, he rouses the people of Florence against the Medici family, throws them out, uh, and sets up his own regime. And this is all lovely for a little while, but then, of course, being a very devout, um, more than devout, um, possibly you know, overly devout, um, uh, priest. Um, the books start getting burnt, um, gambling gets uh, banned, various other things get banned. He wants a really upright society and of course the people rebel against it and bring the Medici back. And then the Medici, um, uh, rather than having him executed for treason or you know, some form of treachery, um, have him executed for heresy. So they get the Pope to to do the do the deed it's and they and this is allegedly the text that he writes on the eve of his death. We do not have an exact thing which says okay. I Savonarola am writing this on the eve of my death, but the text is reckoned to be by mm. him. And it's a meditation on Psalm fifty one. Um, have mercy on me, O God, uh, the great penitential psalm. Um, three people set this text: um, Rore, Cipriano de Rore, uh, Orlando Lassus de Lasso, um, and Bird. And Rory and Lasso, as you'd expect, are wonderful, they're absolutely lovely. Um, the bird is in a totally different league. Um, it's a very personal text, it's a lot of I, me, you know, this is what I feel, this is the situation I am in. It's not removed as often biblical texts can be. Um, and for me, I think the reason why Bird responds in a different way is there is a, um, there is a link between Savonarola in Florence um, having been discarded by his friends, having been betrayed, if you like, um, facing death, deprived of his life and his position, and Bird in England, deprived of his faith, forbidden from openly celebrating the sacraments, the uh, the old religion, which is his life, but being mm. denied him and his community. And I think that's why it elicits such a direct emotional, very, very powerful... So, so there's definitely, we sense, like a definite autobiographical tone, if you like. To well, this I think so. And if Perry McCarthy was here, she'd probably say, I'm being way too romantic now. <laughs> um, but um, I, I feel a power behind this, like the surge of the sea. You know, it's, you can listen to, this, um, I think Bird is, this is wonderful, but you can listen to a much more emotionally neutral um, piece. There, there are plenty of those. Um, for me, this feels big. It's what I would call a Tudor symphony in the line of great Tudor symphonies of Vox Patris Celestis. You know, um, okay, there's, there's, there's tons of Picavimus, mm-hmm. um, things which take you on a big journey, um, large in scale, long. So this is about ten minutes long, in three different sections, three yeah. distinct sections. Um, big scoring. S-A-T-T, bar B, six voices, divided basses, divided tenors, um, and it, um, there's a lot of dialogue, different um, groups talking to each other, um, there's a wonderful, it says, like, you know, I dare not look up to heaven, you can almost hear the groups singing it, trying to lift their hand up, um, like Faustus in, um, in Christopher Marlowe's play, and it talks about trying to touch the lifeblood of Christ and running in the heavens, it's, you, can all, you can hear them doing that and falling, failing to yeah. do it. I just find it, it very immediate and powerful. Yeah. 
I mean, he said it all. Yeah. <laughs> that is. Yeah, I, I just wonder if there's... Is it unique in that sense in Bird's Eye? Is, is it him sort of making a big Catholic statement or, or are there other works that do the same or analogous thing? Well, I don't think, I mean, there are big statements, mm-hmm. certainly. I mean, Tribuet is a big statement. Ad Dominum is a big statement. Um, there are also less well-known pieces, which are huge. Hic Dicit Dominus, that rarely gets done. Um... Um, um, I've, uh, there's another piece as well which, which I could remember the name of Domino Quis Habitabit Domino Quis Habitabit is another one um, uh, even Tristitia yeah, Deus Venerum Gentis Adescendit Gentis is the one yeah. I was thinking in terms of the little known just right. exquisite I love um, that one uh, he, talking about him coming down from heaven through the ear of a virgin and going out from the world in a, through a gate of gold um, so there are big Catholic statements, and of course the Graduania is a big Catholic statement, but it's much smaller scale. Yeah. I think it's the, the the sheer size, the length, the scoring, the power of the of the, 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 the ideas that he's got going on, how he uses them, that makes it makes it for me the most yeah, almost the the, the ultimate yeah. statement. Lovely. Um I'm s <laughs> Let's think about it. Can we talk about it a bit as singers and what what makes it so good to sing? What makes it such good music? Have you got a sense of that? I think I remember um, Joseph Kermit in his early days and and um, Edmund Fellows. They they often called birds music archaic. Are these sort of early editors? Yeah, these are early yeah. editors of birds music from the early to mid twentieth century. And Kermit was a bit later, but he this was his uh, doctoral thesis, so it was. Uh, first written in 1950, so, you know, okay. early for him. Um, he came to change his mind about a lot of these things. But, you know, they, they all called Bird's music archaic because it was in that, quote-unquote, older style. Um, and I think when you sing Bird, you realize how inaccurate that is mm-hmm. because it's, it's not awkward in that older style. It is rhythmically incredibly challenging, and it sometimes comes out of nowhere. You're like comfortably in minims or whatever and then all of a sudden you've got this little diddly bit that's very important to the cadence and you know you turn the page or you know you didn't see it coming and I think as a singer you realize that there's incredible craftsmanship um, no matter what line you're singing there's no rubbish line there's no because he's always thinking contrapuntally um, there's never that that you know the altos the filler kind of situation it's every line is a gem really yeah it's real singer's music too isn't it Oh, I think so. Mm. Huge. I mean, we've been in tears sometimes, sometimes in recording sessions, yeah. because it's it's just amazing. It's amazing to sing. And I mean, the question I suppose one of the questions for me is: if you took the text out and you just sang it all to ooh, would you have the same response? I sort of think you would actually, because the beauty of the music is is so so clear. Um, it's this mixture, I think, of beauty and wit, the rhetoric and the beauty. It's very sort of just as well. You know, so all the notes are in the right place. Yeah, you, wouldn't, yeah. you wouldn't change much, would you? You couldn't, you couldn't kind of fiddle with it at all and, and improve anything. It's, it's that long. No, it is, it is exactly is. And it's interesting when you look at some of the manuscript stuff, which is early, which is clearly early, like the two little alleluias, um, or a couple of other little four-part pieces, where you can see him playing around with stuff. And it's not as great. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's early stuff. It's very well-written. 
it's um, even that in Exeter Israel that he wrote with Shepherd mm. and Mundi. You say, well, actually, it's a little bit awkward this phase. Um, so you can see him learning his craft. But I mean, once he gets the stuff that he chooses to publish, although why he doesn't publish Ad Dominum, I'll, I'll never know. I don't know why he didn't publish that. Um, once you get to 1575, I mean, it's just golden yeah. all the way through. It's exciting, isn't it, to watch a composer, to be able to sort of witness historically a composer finding their genius, really, and refining it and finessing it all yeah. the time. That's what happens with, with him. There's a new book uh, of bird scholarship coming out in December that I'm a co-editor of, um, and one of the chapters is on Similes at Fiant and uh, the in Exit to Israel um, by Magnus Williamson, who's a professor at Newcastle University. I know you both know. Um, and uh, it's it it's great. I, I don't want to give it away, but it, oh, it's, it talks about Bird as an apprentice mm. and what he's doing. And, and the crux of what he's doing is he's imitating one of his teachers, Shepard. And he makes a very strong argument for this, in my opinion. Um, and so I'm looking forward to that book coming out. Right. Yeah. I mean, I have to say, you also look at the Shepherd a bit and think, oh, that's a little bit ungainly. <laughs> <laughs> so I think he's, yeah, I think that I'm sure that's what he's doing. Um, you mentioned Ad Dominum Contribulare. Mm. So we'll hear a bit of that. We'll hear the second half of that now. This is, this is probably the, the one I would choose if, if I were to choose. Um, it's another eight-part uh, sort of sprawling masterwork. Let's hear it.
that was the second part of Ad Dominum Cum Tribulare um, with Ifagellini from the 1990s, I think, directed by uh, Robert Hollingworth of this parish. Now, a um, couple of things about that piece. Let's talk about the, perhaps the negatives first. We hear the bit of period pronunciation. Uh, do we have any views on that? Well, I, I mean, so we do a little bit of period pronunciation. We do consonants. We don't do vowels. We don't change our vowels at all. We stick to a sort of Italian... You do sing vowels. But we do sing vowels. <laughs> we, we find it's more percussive just to sing the consonants. Um, <laughs> uh, no, um, we do all of the letters. Um, but, um, yeah, we, we modify the consonants um, to, uh, to fit with what is known. I'm reluctant to change the vowel cover um, for um, several reasons. Uh, principally because we don't really know. We can have a jolly good, um, we can have a jolly good guess. We've got poetry to look at. We've got assonance and... Various things, but it is it is guesswork. Um, in terms of our, what we expect from modern day tuning, I, I prefer the clarity of the um, of the vowels. I also dare I say, do you think it's unfair of me to say that sometimes it can be a bit comical? No, absolutely. I think with my academic hat on, I like that there is a recording of it. I like to hear it. I like as a as an experiment. Um, but as a listener, it I find it gets in the way of my enjoyment. Um, because I am a modern listener, I am not a period listener. Therefore, I listen with my modern ears. I think that's exactly right. From from a singer's point of view, uh, it, it, if I may, it's it's kind of it distracts from what's familiar about the music and what's familiar about those texts that you can really get stuck into. And just I think that you also gets in the way a bit. I mean, it's not unheard of that it's led to laughter and corpsing, which is highly unprofessional. We don't approve of that. I've never done that. No, that's I can state that's true. Um, but let's talk now about the... Uh, well, just the, about the well, piece a little yeah, bit. Exactly, um, yeah, because, exactly. uh, so this, I, I just, this is my example for how grateful I am that a single book or a single piece of paper, really, or a couple sheets of paper survive, mm. because there's only one source for this motet. Um, it's in the British Library. It's in a big book of in nomines, which are uh, vile pieces, um, and it doesn't have any text underlaid. It just has a suggestion of what the text is. So anyone who's editing this piece has to guess where all the words go. Um, and I'm just so grateful that it exists because if that one thing had been burned or been mislaid, I mean, it's it's fun to think about. <laughs> yeah, it's right at the top of you know if you do sort of Twitter polls about this kind of stuff, it's right at the top of every single yeah. kind of top bird, isn't it? It's really really. It is. It is. Well, it's so. It's. It's just very, very well written. I mm. think. And um, yeah, I mean, posterity has been very kind to us in, mm. this, mm. in this case. And I, I, but as I mentioned before, I'm interested that he chose not to publish it. <clears throat> I mean, it could have been conceived as an instrumental piece. Anyway, I know yep. there's there's no such thing as an instrumental piece. It's all you know, either yeah. voices or instruments. But I mean, I, I, I just don't understand. I and mean, he doesn't publish a Dominic Quis Habitabit either. Maybe pieces in eight parts or you know is, 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 is too much um, around 1575 I don't know but um, it seems odd to me this piece which is so strong he doesn't write that much eight part music no. um, basically no. you've got this piece and then you've got the ones he wrote for in exchange supposedly with Philip de Monte but that was in particularly in a continental style and the continental composers were writing in eight part much more frequently so that was probably a nod to that continental style so you don't really see bird writing in eight parts very often and I think that's another unique thing about this the other one that I think people often wonder why didn't he publish this 
and perhaps it's for the same reason, is the O Salutaris mm. Ostia 6. The really naughty one. The really naughty one, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, which we should have probably picked for this, but we didn't. But everyone can go <laughs> listen to it on their own. Yeah, it's very... Well, the first time we sang it, it was... Uh, we didn't quite believe that... Um, but, of course, it's clear because it's a canon. Yeah. Um, there is absolutely no doubt. I mean, it's possible he might have regarded this as an early experimental... I mean, we don't know it's early, actually. Um, you know, it's, it's not published... Um, maybe he just was playing around, you know, what can I do if I do this? Is, wow. Yeah, is it an academic exercise kind of taken to its um, yeah, logical Yeah, it it's extremely powerful mm. and beautiful, I think. Mm. I've even done it here with um, the choir at St Paul's, and the, the, the choristers were completely blown away by it, because yeah. um, it's so weird. Well, yeah. and those two um, kind of contrapuntal treble parts are just so beautiful mm. in conversation with each other, I can see why they love yeah. it. yeah. Can we talk a little bit about that, Andrew, that you've done this, obviously this music a lot with the Cardinals Music, which is a, a concert, consort, mm-hmm. is that fair to yeah. say, or a recording group? But obviously you're director here at St Paul's. Um, uh, thanks for hosting us today. Not so, it's a pleasure. Um, are there differences? Obviously lots of birds music doesn't get done liturgically in, mm-hmm. in a routine fashion, but in terms of the expediency of turnover repertoire, what are the differences between working with those two different mm-hmm. groups? Yeah, I mean, I mean, sad to say, very little of birds' music is done in regular mm. liturgy, um, I mean, especially from the graduania, and that's partly, of course, because it's conceived for solo voices, and it's you know some of the writing is very fast and fiddling, mm. and cathedral choirs tend to be built sometimes for comfort more than speed. Um, but um, the, the cardinals, with the cardinals, it's it's great, and you pick your, the singers that you need. Um, so if you've got one particular scoring, you have one group of singers, and if you've got another one, so you've always got the right people. Your cathedral choir is set. Um, the other difficulty for a cathedral choir is, of course, they have an enormous repertoire. So the repertoire here is vast. So one day the choristers can be singing Stanford and Britain and Mozart, and then they're doing Talis and Bird. And it's um, it's tricky for them sometimes to make that that transition. Um, but in terms of, and to get to, to what I think you might mean about the, the music in the liturgy as opposed to in the concert hall, um, I've always been very, uh, very keen, and I hope quite clear, that every um, every human being has a spiritual dimension and that needs feeding and I'm not talking about going to church there's nothing to do with going to church but when you encounter this music in the concert hall um, you need some context and you need something which allows you to get on the inside a bit like we're saying the singers are um, in birds compositions um, so that you can enjoy it in the church of course you don't need that so much because by the fact you're in the church you're in a service you have drama colour and the sight of it all as well as the sound <clears throat> you are sort of on the inside of it. Um, I would say that here at St Paul's I probably tend to do the slower pieces. I see we do the English music yep. much. I don't do the great service, I'm afraid. I, want, I do used to, and I <laughs> got a letter from a gentleman after Evensong who said, Dear Sir, um, words to this effect, I'm, I'm sure he won't see me. Um, Dear Sir, I came to Evensong last night. There were no orders of service under the dome. There was no music list. I sat and listened to ten minutes of utterly impenetrable polyphony, which I could not understand a single word, and um, could you please not do this again? And um, I didn't reply, but I thought about it. I thought, well, actually, he's probably absolutely right. Um, because that sort of really dense um, contrapuntal you know, texture does not work well in an eight-second echo. Yeah. Um, and um, so I tend to avoid stuff which is heavily polyphonic and imitative in St Paul's. I tend to go to the slightly cleaner ones. So we do the second service and the short service and um, the English anthems. We do um, quite a lot of the Latin stuff as well, as much as I can. Um, but I, I think I think e- both is equally valuable. Um, 
I do think shorn of its context, and I know some. Of, I have colleagues in the music world who disagree with this. Shorn of its context, its liturgy, its text, and its subtext. You know what it's about, why it's there. I think we appreciate it slightly less. And I am a great believer. When I go to an art gallery, I want to know everything about the paintings that I'm looking at. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's important to remember also that a lot of what we think of as uh, church music of Bird's Output is not intended for mm. a church setting. A lot of these big Latin, you know, I think, what, what was the title of Cancionis Sacre? It was music in a sacred style or yeah, idiom. Argument is that yeah, I can't be, Because of their subject matter. Because of the sacred. subject matter, yeah. exactly. Yep. Well done. Yeah. <laughs> um, and that's something to remember. So even though there are pieces in that that perhaps would be performed liturgically today, they would have been sung perhaps in a more domestic, smaller, kind of amongst elite mm -hmm. rich people, basically, um, in, in Bird's time. So it's not necessarily meant for liturgy as much as it is for social edification of the soul and the spirit. Absolutely. And, and the fact that religion is at the centre of everything. Yeah. So it, we have this idea now that religion belongs in church and doesn't come outside, yeah. whereas in the 16th century, religion is everywhere. It's in yeah. the air you breathe. So it would not be on to, to sing a religious song at the end of a, um, a meal and maybe talk about it. Mm. And that's a really important part of the music that we probably struggle with today to really grasp, isn't it? Yeah. Before we finish with the final track, two things I want to just ask you both. Um, firstly, we talked about this dense polyphonic texture, which is hallmark of so much music how does a listener come to that and, and kind of approach it without being overwhelmed by the kind of virtuosity and knottiness of the texture and also I'd like to think a little bit more about Bird and his to what extent this was kind of clandestine um oh, it sounds like a Welsh resort doesn't it um <laughs> clandestine um music making and, and the fact that was this all in secret or is that a bit overplayed in the kind of in the in the histori historiography of his life. So in terms of the texture, the first part of your question, I think one can look to the way he's arranged the English uh, songbooks, 1588, 1589, and 1611, to look a little bit more into how this music would have been consumed by people then, because I think um, he does it in a few different ways, depending on the publication, but it's either about the number of voices, so three voices, four voices, five voices and so on, as Tompkins also does for his songbook of 1622, um, or it's by mood. So I imagine it sort of like a box of chocolates where, you know, maybe you like a few different things, but you're feeling a little bit like, I want the nutty one today, and then I want the caramel one tomorrow, or, or what's, what's the mood? And you can kind of look at this box of chocolates and these little songs, and you can pick the ones that suit your temperament at the at that time, and that, that was actually a very contemporary, early modern way of thinking about how music um, affects us and how it, it affects the soul. So you really match the music to your mood, and that's how the music affects you or even changes you. So it could be that you're feeling a bit stroppy, so you go for something even sadder, but somehow that lifts you out of your sadness or your strop, you know? Or you could listen to something happy and that would lift you out. It really depends on the... the um, the blood type, the planets, yeah. the astrology of the individual person. Yeah, I, mean, it's, I, I think I'd have a couple of practical suggestions. So um, I have a rule here with the choristers here that they can't say they don't like a piece until they've heard it three times, until they've performed it three times. Good. 
um, because we, you know, it's not uncommon for people to hear a piece of, oh, it's dreadful, absolutely awful music. Um, and I don't think anyone would do that with a bird, but it's the business of making friends with it. And you can't do that. We do have a, we, especially in this day and age, we have a very quick response time. You listen to a couple of minutes and think, oh, I don't like that, and it goes away. You, you have to live with it a bit and make friends with it. Exactly like performers. Bird says that. Bird actually says that in one of the English uh, books. He says, you know, you can't judge this until you get to know it. Yeah, Yeah, and I think as performers, particularly the early stuff we've spoken of, about there's that collection of 1575 that he writes with Talis. Talis feels like he's a much more mature personality Mm -hmm. within, so his stuff is all very spare and very beautiful, economical, kind of approachable. Even as a singer and seeing the music in score, it's absolutely mind-bogglingly sort of intense, isn't it? And actually, yeah, it takes time to, to, yeah. to make friends with it. So, so don't, you know, give, you, give yourself some time and listen to it more than, more than once. Um, but the other thing is, I think, if you have text, you, it's good to know what the text means. So obviously, if it's in English, it's much easier. You can just sort of you know, read it on your liner notes or wherever you can get it. But even just knowing what the, um, the, the knowing what the Latin text means, knowing how the words sound, because I've, I certainly find it helpful when I'm listening to a piece of music. If I recognise the text, if I hear somebody starting with an imitative lead and then there's one over there, you just it allows you to follow. I think slightly more easily. Um, and the other thing to say is that you know ten part dense polyphony is quite hard. It's hard. <laughs> so it's okay to, to you, find it hard. It's okay yeah. to find it hard. Yeah. And to come back to your point, I think this is where the, not just the three part, but four part, five part stuff is, especially if it's a bit more homophonic. Mm. And sometimes then you know get used to that, and then get on to the hardcore stuff. And maybe don't listen to ten part polyphony in St Paul's Cathedral. I guess never ever as a health warning listen to ten part polyphony. <laughs> Chapel Royal, perhaps a little bit more approachable. Do make sure you write a letter. Yes. <laughs> um, Katie, Andrew, thank you so much. It's been really amazing to um, chat about birds. You both know so much and such enthusiasm. And let's have one last track, which I think we should have uh, Osalotaris Hostia, which we mentioned earlier, which is, well, does one of you want to uh, sort of describe that a little bit to us before we prepare our ears for it? Oh, wow. Gosh, I don't want to give the game away. Yeah. Um, well, it's um, got various canons going on, so that's when one part is singing a tune and another part replicates that tune exactly, at, usually at a different pitch, it can be at the unison, at the octave, but at the fourth or the fifth. And so we know it's right. I think I would just leave it there. Every note that you're about to hear is incorrect. Nothing has been... In- it's correct. Sorry. That's that's really it's going so it's well. Really we didn't even get to the E sharp and civitas. Yeah, oh god, what was I saying? So yes, um um we know therefore that every note that you're gonna hear is correct. There is nothing wrong. Your eyebrows may Do not adjust your sets. Go up, do not adjust your sets, <laughs> just strap in and um You'll be okay. Yeah.
Oh, never have so many false relations been gathered together in one motet. The Fichte police are all over that. Singing was the Marion Consort, directed by Rory McCleary, and also dropped into this episode we heard part of the Great Services Magnificat, sung by the Odyssean Ensemble, conducted by Colm Carey, who's also the Master of the Music at the Tower of London. And from that same recording, the Fantasia BK62, a bit of it anyway, Christian Wilson on organ. Fantastic to get insights from people who live and breathe bird. I've worked with Andrew on occasion, and I was always struck by his unfussy attitude to vocal production. This is quite rare in early music vocal ensembles. His focus was always on the text, the point of the text as well, whether it was devotional or liturgical. I couldn't help noticing that all three contributors trashed the concept of period pronunciation, so perhaps we'll hear the other side of that argument another time. See you then. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Just before you go, another reminder to try listening on Patreon which costs just a few pounds per month. Or if you prefer, you can very simply make a one-off donation. You can actually do either via coralchihuahua.com. Thanks. <laughs>